The Macarena by Los Del Rio. I'm too sexy, right, said Fred. Who let the dogs out? Baja men. Mumbo number five, Lou Bega. Welcome back to the Lynx Golf Podcast. Yes, this is a golf podcast. If you hear some of those song titles and artists, what do you think of? You might associate them all with being one-hit wonders. I was reading some of the list of the 100 greatest one-hit wonders just then from VH1. When it comes to golf's one-hit wonders, you've got the one-hit wonder players, maybe a person who's only won a major once and and disappeared into the night uh, or only a a one-tournament winner. Uh, For our conversation purposes today, and once again, I'm joined by Joe Passoff. This is Al Lunsford from Lynx. We're going to discuss the one-hit wonders of the golf course architecture world. Joe, a very niche, I think, interesting topic that you are responsible for coming up with the idea for for today's podcast. Uh, as he is so often, Joe is our idea man, I think, at least nine times out of ten. It seems to be something that was Joe's idea to discuss. Uh, he's very good at that. Joe, what made you think of this conversation piece? Well, here at Lynx Magazine, Al, we love talking about architecture. And most people have their favorite architects, whether you're talking about golden age guys like Ross, Mackenzie, Tillingast, Flynn, uh, George Thomas, or you're talking about the modern breed, whether that's Robert Trent Jones Sr. from mid-century, or whether it's Coor Crenshaw or... David Kidd or Tom Doak or Gil Hans today. But from time to time over the years, there have been golf courses uh, that have emerged, sometimes shockingly good, that were designed by architects that never did anything else. Or maybe they did, but it never came close to measuring up to this one golf course that jumps out. And I thought, you know, we do love talking about design, whether it's in the pages of the magazine or on our podcast, and why not examine and even celebrate some of the architects who essentially were one-hit wonders? I think the courses on this list may surprise people who may not have dug into this topic. The names are go from the, the best in the world to some of the classic revered examples in the United States and in the British Isles, to some names that you may not have heard of, but are high-ranking, at least in, in the states that they're in, uh, and in golf circles, certain certain golf circles, well-known and, and highly regarded for one reason or another. So we're breaking this down, Joe kind of alluded to it, into a couple of tiers. We have Tier 1, where... You have an architect that did one well-known and and famous and highly regarded course, and then poof, they're gone. That was their only contribution to golf course architecture. Then you have a tier two level. We've got a couple of names to share on that level as well, where, yes, they did a couple of other courses. Uh, It's not like this was the only project they were a part of, however... 
there's one course on their belt that shines above the rest. So I think what we'll do is just go through tier one, then go to tier two, bring up a couple of examples, maybe some people that could be considered one day, one hit wonders. But for now, we'll have to wait and see. But let's start at the top of the top and the... I don't know. I guess the the two at the top of this list are kind of the ultimate one-hit wonders that I think people may know about, but uh, a lot of people may be surprised to learn. Okay, Al. Yeah, at the top of the list, and really there are two candidates, in the one-hit wonder category, um, I think we have to start with the younger of the two courses because it's ranked number one in the world by every poll, every ranking. Pine Valley Golf Club in Pine Valley, New Jersey, or Clementon, New Jersey, uh, depending if you count Pine Valley, the borough. Uh, but what it was, was the inspiration, the vision, the ambition, and almost a manic obsession with a man named George Crump. Yes, George Crump, the designer of the world's top-ranked golf course. So, sure, if you're a fan of this stuff, you probably know that. And you may even know some of the backstory from George Crump. But how weird is it that an amateur architect designed the world's best course and, in fact, didn't do any other golf courses whatsoever? Yeah, I mean, it's still bizarre. It's unusual. Um, Now, in the case of George Crump, even in the years that he started planning this around 1912, 1913, there weren't a lot of professional architects floating around out there. So a lot of times it was an amateur, a a good player that just simply had seen some good golf courses and said, let's take a go at laying one out ourselves. But in Crump's case, it, he was an excellent player. He came from a hotel family Uh, which was very prosperous. He was from Philadelphia, as a lot of the great early architects seemed to be. And in Crump's case, he was a terrific player, uh, a member of uh, many of the top clubs in the region, from Philadelphia Country Club to Huntington Valley uh, in New Jersey, Atlantic City Country Club. And um, he had started on this project but uh, his wife died uh, young. And at that point, he really didn't have a lot else going on and decided to encamp on this site that he discovered on a passing train. He was looking for the best land available and found this spot, rolling sand and and some trees and shrubbery. And it really did look like the British Isles because he and a friend had gone uh, in 1910 to make a study of the great courses of the British Isles. And he came back and wanted to duplicate something like that for Philadelphia, which at the time didn't have a true great championship course. Very soon after Marion would come, we'll probably talk about that, But at the time, there just weren't any legitimately great championship courses. So this is what George Crump set out to do. And in finding the site, 
and getting going. And it took a long, long time to finally get Pine Valley moving, stops and starts and this and that. But maybe most fascinating about Pine Valley is it actually served as a laboratory, a working laboratory for architecture. So Crump, I think, was pretty sure in his own vision. But there are other experts out there that give equal, mind you, equal design credit to the great Harry S. Colt from Britain. And Crump was an admirer of Colt's work. He was basically the world's top architect in 1910. And Colt came over and stayed a while, stayed several months and helped out with the routing at Pine Valley and did his work on these holes basically to Crump's vision. So you can credit Crump for 90% of Pine Valley or 98%. Or maybe it's just 50%. No one's necessarily sure. But needless to say, Colt was a gigantic influence on Pine Valley. And so were others, including William Flynn, who was from Philadelphia, who was asked to come take a look. George Thomas, who was from Philadelphia, later made his fame in Los Angeles with Riviera and LACC and Bel Air. But George Thomas took a look and made suggestions. And then you had A.W. Tillinghast, a Philly guy, offering his two cents. And then last but not least, Hugh Wilson. And Hugh, of course, may well make our list in this conversation because he designed Marion. But he, too, went over to take a study of all of Britain's greatest courses. And in the end, um, Crump died, sadly, at his own hand before the completion of the golf course. 14 holes were done and Hugh Wilson helped finish off the final four holes, 12 through 15, among the greatest of a great golf course. So that's a lot of material for you. Crump, again, superb player, had the money, had the time to be obsessed with this project. So from 1913, when they started construction, um, the final version actually didn't open till uh, around 1922. An amazing project, an amazing man, and, um, you know, sadly, never did anything else and never even lived to see the completion of Pine Valley. You know how old he was at the time when he when he passed? Yeah, that's going to be, uh, let me do the uh, the math, 29 and uh, 18 is 47, about 46. Okay. So reasonably, you would think, um, and just look at the list at how it's remarkable how dynamic of a team was put together to end up with a finished product there. You would think had he continued on, that George Crump may not be a part of this conversation after completing Pine Valley. Um, but that's something that can never be known. Uh, at this point, he he's a one-hit wonder because he uh, ran out his own clock before the end so of to, the world's best course. Yeah, so to speak, Al. And, um, you know, I mean, anytime you end your life, that – prematurely um there's sadness what ifs associated with it but 
we will always have this incredible reminder of the passion and talent that he had in Pine Valley, which after all these years still continues to rank ahead of all the other courses, primarily because it has the most memorable collection of great holes of any golf course. So whether it's 98% Crump or 50% Crump, it is George Crump's vision. And um, wow, we'll, uh, we'll always be grateful for, for what he achieved. Speaking of which, uh, I think a lot of people will be grateful for what they see at the next course, uh, number two on your list. Pretty much even up at the top uh, in terms of high-profile uh, tier one, one-hit wonders. Uh, Joe, what's the other one that comes to mind when people think of this conversation? Yeah, the one that comes to mind, of course, is Oakmont in suburban Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. One of the truly greatest championship courses in existence. Uh, it is as relevant today as it was when it was built in 1903. And so understand that this predated Pine Valley by 15 to 20 years. And scholars that have studied both courses remark on the similarities, if not in total look, at least in the essence, the philosophy of what a golf course should test. And the comparisons between Pine Valley and Oakmont are pretty amazing if you run through them. Um, perhaps one day we will uh, do that in more depth, but understanding that we are talking primitive, 1903. I mean, we had almost no earth moving equipment back then. And this was the, uh, well, this design is responsible for uh, a, a man named Henry C. Phones. It's spelled F-O-W-N-E-S, but pronounced Phones. And he was um, in uh, iron manufacturing, uh, as Pittsburgh, uh, most of the wealthy people have something to do with iron and steel, hence the name the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, and he and his brother uh, founded a, uh, a company that was eventually bought out by Carnegie Steel. And uh, he became a golfer, again, um, enamored with the game from his trip or trips to Great Britain and decided he wanted a golf course in his hometown to mimic the very best of what he saw across the pond, which was lynx-like, even heathland, um, but there weren't to be any trees, uh, no frilly adornments, so to speak, just great golf holes laid out over a compelling piece of property. Well, that's exactly what you got in Oakmont. The genius of Oakmont is not in how brutally tough it was or is, or how many bunkers uh, that you could put from church pews to, you know, pick your other names, but there were bunkers all over the place, to the speed and firmness of the greens, which is absolutely legendary. Those are the things that, that drove scores up for years, all those factors, and all those U.S. Opens and PGAs, U.S. Amateurs. But what architect buffs admire most is how phones use the lay of the land. That's why so many of the greens actually fall from one side to the other, left to right or right to left, or in a couple of interesting cases, front to back, which you don't see very often. 
and almost never saw back then, a green that drained away instead of draining back to front. And the reason is that he cited his greens and cited the golf holes exactly how they fell on the land. We just weren't moving earth in those days. So if that's how the land was, that's where the grass was put and mowed. And, and that's what Oakmont's genius really is all about. So it's been des described as penal. In many other respects, it's fair but brutal. And, um, and that was the, the vision of uh, Henry Clay Phones. Now, it is a little confusing because um, his son, William C. Phones Jr., named after his uh, Henry's brother, continued the legacy on for many more years. And so a lot of the uh, course maintenance issues, some of the changes over the years, uh, the use of that toothed uh, snaggle tooth break in the bunkers for the 1935 U.S. Open, which made scoring sore um, and make Oakmont even harder. That was the result of, of William Fones, um, who carried on his, uh, his dad's legacy uh, uh, pretty prominently. But um, it was the vision of Henry Fones, and uh, neither Henry nor William experimented with any more architecture anywhere else, making Oakmont just about side by side with Pine Valley for the greatest one hit wonders. It's almost like they got together and said, you know, why, why would we go try to do something else? Well, we've got this right here. Um, and let's just Precisely. keep this. And, and now it's, it's hosted the U S open more times than any course. Um, nine with a 10th coming in 2025 um three pgas all the the amounts of events it's hosted is um seemingly without end and yeah it's one of the most recognized courses in the world uh they built their kingdom and stayed there to make sure that it would last uh and it certainly has so going from those two shining examples, you moved down the list and there's still quite a few good names here uh, on our one-hit wonder list. Uh, again, we're talking right now about you know architects that just have the one course and didn't go do anything else. Um, next on the list that, that I'll speak to a little bit, and maybe Joe has something to contribute, but... Um, want to talk about another course in the Northeast and that's on Nantucket Island uh, in Massachusetts. Uh, century old club, uh, century and some change now that just hosted recently the 2021 Mid-Am and gave people a chance to see it. Uh, not many people have because of its private nature, uh, but that Sankety Head Golf Club, the the one course built by a man by the name of H. Emerson Armstrong, uh, a local lad in the area. His dad was a, a, a club pro, and he was a, a pretty good player himself. He was a club champion uh, at the next-door neighbor, and forgive me if I say this wrong, old Sconset. Uh, Sconset, can you help me with that one? 
Al, I'd love to help you. And maybe <laughs> we have some New Englanders out there that could. I have struggled with the SC, CT, all of those other ones um, as well. Sconset? Sconset, I'm seeing, uh, is kind of the you know, slang okay. uh, pronunciation there. But uh, anyways, he, he laid out uh, 30 miles in from the coast a course that a lot of people consider to be as as close to links like uh as it gets in north america and it benefited recently from a uh rejuvenation and um restoration by jim urbina uh right before it hosted that mid-am um jim says of armstrong's work for his only foray into design, it was pretty damn good. He spent several years walking through the thicket to find the rowdy. It moves perfectly, and as a walk, it's seamless. Uh, the course, from my understanding, it is built around a about a 170-year-old lighthouse, Sankety Lighthouse, white on the top, red on the bottom, and... Uh, it's configured in basically a figure eight, uh, one nine on one side of the clubhouse and the lighthouse and one nine on the other. So everything's built right around to come back, uh, home to the clubhouse in the middle. Um, Urbina again, calling that design work genius from H Emerson Armstrong. That's kind of the the basis of what I know about the property, other than it being firm and fast, uh, what you consider a true links to to look and feel like. Joe, uh, do you know, know much else about Sankety Head? Um, I don't, Al. I know that its location on Nantucket Island uh, means it's going to be windy. You know, even even if it's not right on the water, um, there's going to be breezes. And so it will play very links-like and you've got to flight your ball accordingly. I haven't had the pleasure. I've just heard wonderful things about it. Um, but most amusing is that this fellow, as Jim Urbina described, did a, an amazing job for a, a one-time go at it. And again, you just scratch your head saying if it was as popular in the day, why didn't others seek him out to help them with their course? And, and maybe there's a reason he didn't pursue it either. Um, again, I don't know enough about him uh, or about Sankety Head to, uh, to speculate any further. Yeah, and being that he was a local guy, maybe it's kind of the same case. You know, it, they, they asked him if he'd do it, and he said, sure, it's right next door to his club that he plays, and uh, kind of just carried on with his life in the area. But... Um, you know, now Sankety Head is considered one of the, the top 10 in the state. I think we we looked into it, and it's not in that top 100 conversation per se, but maybe in that next tier, top in the top 200 clubs uh, in the country. So um, another good example uh, of a one-hit wonder uh, from a lesser-known guy, H. Emerson Armstrong. Moving across the pond uh, from one links like course to one links uh, joe your next example on the list 
Al, given that this is the Lynx podcast, I'm happy that we have an actual Lynx to talk about. And that would be on the Kentish coast of Eastern England, which is Royal St. George's Golf Club. And many of you know Royal St. George's from either its frequent role as an Open Championship host, or you've been there, you've played it yourself and appreciate its many, many charms. It ranks easily in the top 50 in the world. It's not necessarily the pro's favorite because there still are blind shots out there. There's some really funky slopes, humps and hillocks that propel what might be a good shot into a bad situation. And of course the pros love fairness, predictability and certainty when they're playing for that kind of uh, money. But for those of us who just tee it up because we love to play, Royal St. George's is phenomenal. Couple of holes that go through these giant sand hills. In one case, very famous bunker, uh, the maiden that you have to carry on the fourth hole, just a massive sand hazard. And that's more intimidating looking than playing these days. But the entire golf ground at Royal St. George's is just lumpy, humpy fun. And, um, you know, again, a personal favorite, too. But the reason we're talking about it is because it was designed not by one of the giants of the 19th century, like old Tom Morris or Willie Park Sr., but rather by someone named W. Laidlaw Purvis. Yahoo? Okay. Again, those of you who are serious about this stuff, remember his name comes up every time the Open Championship is played there. But um, Laidlaw Purvis was not an architect, but he was an impressive fellow nonetheless. He was a Scottish physician who co-founded the club, designed the course. He discovered the property himself in 1885 while in the company of his brother, who was an archaeologist and who had wished to see the spot that Roman Emperor Claudius landed in Britain in 43 AD. So the Purvies ascended the tower of this Norman church in town to obtain the best view. And of course, we're talking about the town of Sandwich. So our man Laidlaw Purvies is up on this tower. And uh, I don't know if they ever spotted the actual spot that Claudius landed, but he did stumble upon a plot of heaving dune-studded lynx land. Oh, he couldn't resist. He figured out a way to, well, own it, <laughs> at least with some help. And two years later, designed Royal St. George's. And he may have been a novice architect, but he was a really good player and a member of Muirfield, what was known as Muirfield, the Honorable Company of Edinburgh golfers. So he did know a thing or two about golf courses and, and good ones. After that, zilch, nada. We never see W. Laidlaw Purvey's name as an architect on another golf course, but he sure did a fine job with Royal St. George's. That's a good deep cut trivia question that people can come back to if they, uh, if they so choose, uh, which, which course on the open road was built by someone who never built another golf course again, uh, Royal St. George's. Don't know how far that trivia question stretches in, in the world of, you know, sports trivia, but it's, it's an option for you. So let's go back to 
the states and and this one is a, a unique case, I think, too. In Morgantown, West Virginia, Mountaineer country, uh, there is a golf course that is considered uh, by many to be the best in the state, uh, or up there at least in West Virginia with the courses at the Greenbrier and Pete Dye Golf Club uh, is a course uh, called Pikewood National. A lot of people know the name Pikewood National as being a course that's rated as one of the most difficult in the country. But it is also the case that Pikewood National was built and designed uh, by a couple of guys who were the CEO and, and vice president of a company, a mining company in the state called Greer Industries, the largest limestone producer in West Virginia. So they have this, you know, close to a thousand acre area of land, company owned land, don't really know what to do with it. It's up in the mountains in West Virginia and loaded full of forest. And ultimately they decide, why don't we build a golf course? Uh, and the idea for the course in their minds, you know, they're very into guys like Donald Ross and Alistair McKenzie and, and love clubs like Pine Valley and Augusta national and don't want to build exactly that, but they want to carve something like no one has ever seen before in these mountains and then also make it a traditional type of golf experience, uh, make it walking only. So what they have now is a course that a lot of people consider to be one of the tougher walks in the country, uh, let alone one of the tougher golf courses on the scorecard. Joe, I, I don't know much about the place other than, than what I've read because I haven't had the chance to visit it. Uh, I don't think you have either, but it's considered, again, very lofty in the, the state rankings uh, and in the rankings in the country. Yeah, I'm not familiar with these gentlemen, John Race and Bob Gwynn, um, but this is a golf course, uh, although I haven't seen it. Um, generally, uh, friends and colleagues that have have said it's just one spectacular hole after another that especially appeals to a good player. So the walking only aspect, and it's a heck of a walk, as I've heard, um, appeals to the purist, the traditionalist. Um, the challenge presented is something that uh, really good players will relish. So, um, yeah, I'm almost reminded uh, very favorably of um, uh, a quote from uh, Mr. Phones himself about Oakmont, let the clumsy the spineless, the alibi artists stand aside. A shot poorly played should be a shot irrevocably lost. And I think that probably could well apply at Pikewood National. And again, these are not guys that made golf course design their career. They just decided to build a golf course uh, on a piece of land that they owned and turned out to be a pretty darn good one. So a lot of these courses are indeed private, but I know that you had a public example 
on here as well, Joe. Yeah, there's a, a golf course out not too far from where I live. Um, it's actually in Mesquite, Nevada called Wolf Creek. And for those of you who have seen pictures and or played it, Wolf Creek is unforgettable. It is one of a kind in the U.S. It is extremely scenic, <laughs> extremely difficult. And uh, I dare say, since I've written it once, no course in the nation posts as many caution, steep grade signs on the cart paths, because likely no course in the United States takes you on such an adventure. You either plunge downhill or climb uphill with almost every hole cocooned by massive sandstone formations, um, enormous canyon walls. It really is more like a Hollywood set stage than a stage staging ground for, for golf. Um, and there are big bunkers and there are streams running through it and there are challenging greens. And it was design credit goes to a guy named Dennis Ryder, R-I-D-E-R, in the year 2000. Um, beyond that, do a Google search of Dennis Ryder and come up with zero. I mean, absolutely nothing. I remember researching it at the time and some give credit or co-credit or partial credit to Dennis's son, John. Um, others say that Dennis was a, a business partner in this particular golf course and that he had a falling out with the other business partner who was then hesitant to give Dennis Ryder design credit. Lots of stories floating around over the years. Someone, and I'm thinking it's the great architecture critic Ron Witten, did a deep dive on this topic years ago. I have not been able to find that deep dive, but um, it's certainly curious that a golf course ranked in the top 100 of public courses that's so spectacular and so little is known about its designer and certainly no record of Dennis Ryder having worked on another project. Al, I know you've got a, a candidate of your own um, that gets very little play. I wanted to throw in one more public course mention um, that just came to me recently, and I forgot what a great golf course Tidewater is in Myrtle Beach. I mean, one of the very best along the Grand Strand, and design credit to Tidewater is given to Ken Tomlinson, who was a tax attorney that came across this piece of property. So Reese Jones, in my understanding, assisted um, either with routing or planning, but the designer of record to one of the great golf courses uh, in that part of the world, Tidewater in Myrtle Beach is Ken Tomlinson. How about that? A late addition to the cause. I'm glad that popped into your head. Another public example. Let's go to the extreme opposite of that uh, to an example that, that I added to the list late as well. Um, a course that is said to have only been played ever. It, it opened in 2008, but it's only seen a few hundred people ever play this design. Uh, it's an extremely exclusive club uh, in the middle of Texas. Uh, I believe it's Port La Cava, Texas. So the course was built for a man by the name of Al Stanger 
his money came from building jet engine parts and wanted to create a retreat for him and his family. Uh, so he hired a, a first-time architect by the name of Mike Nuzzo. And what Mike thought he wanted to do was to bring St. Andrews to Texas. Well, and in fact, it has been described the St. Andrews of Texas now. Um, because of its exclusivity, a lot is not really known about it. Uh, I know, read that Tom Doak had the chance to visit and called their greens the best in Texas that he had seen. It's got about 60 bunkers, a few bunkerless holes, um, and it's characterized by being wide. Uh, it's has its rippled fairways, and a lot of it is the ground game uh, of a, a true Lynx-style course. It was sold uh, in an auction in 2020, and it was rumored to have been purchased by the Dormy Network, series of private clubs. Uh, many of you may know the Dormy Club or Briggs Ranch in Texas, Victoria National uh, made up in that portfolio. Um, but there are some hints that it was bought by Dormy and it's been renamed TXO uh, is the rumor out there. So you could see this course uh, earn more, uh, become more of a, not a household name, but uh, more playable, more accessible, uh, if that indeed is true and it's part of the Dormy network. But for now, uh, it was Mike Nuzzo's real only project. Joe, I, I know we talked about this right before we started recording and because of the notoriety that Wolf Point Ranch received when it was initially conceived, uh, you'd think a guy like Mike Nuzzo would have gone on and, and done even more original designs. Uh, from what I can tell, he he did a nine-hole course, but otherwise he's just kind of consulted. He helped consult for Memorial Park, a club called the Woodmere Club in Long Island and, and a River Oaks Country Club. Um, but his one design to his name uh, and which makes him a one-hit wonder uh, because of it being such a high-profile course in the state of Texas, uh, we throw Mike Nuzzo's name in the hat. Yeah, he had uh, a lot of help from uh, superintendent-slash-builder uh, Don Mahaffey, uh, who's well-known in the business. But, Al, all I could speculate is that so few people, influencers or not, influencers or not got around to seeing what he had accomplished there um, there just wasn't enough widespread acclaim. There was plenty, but not widespread enough, apparently, to attract other individuals to say, wow, this is amazing. Let's get this guy to do our course. So, again, um, not positive why, but uh, for the limited audience that had a chance to see this golf course, uh, it made quite an impression on some very influential people. So that's what we know about are you know top of the line guys that we consider to be true one-hit wonders at this point in time but there are several others of mention uh noteworthy examples where the one course that they did 
heavily outweighs the rest. Uh, so I'll let Joe lead into those notable examples in our tier two now of one-hit wonder architects. Well, the first one you have to lead, lead off with is Pebble Beach. Again, um, it's next door neighbors all feature famous architects, but Pebble Beach was the mainly the product of a man named Jack Neville. And Jack uh, didn't do a whole lot of architecture after that. He was a real estate salesman for the Pebble Beach Company, the Pebble Beach Improvement Company, owned by Samuel Morse. And um, one source says that our friend Mr. Morse tried to convince C.B. McDonald, the dominant architect of the day, to come out and do the course, but he couldn't be persuaded. Um, there were, again, little hints of some other big-time architects. Nothing developed. And supposedly, as the story goes, Mr. Morse said, you know, I got this fellow on my home staff, Jack Neville. He's a pretty good player. He's California amateur champion. Um, he ought to, he plays pretty well. He ought to be able to design a pretty good golf course. And that's how Jack Neville was selected. He had help. Um, a fellow excellent player, California amateur champion named Douglas Grant, um, who had strong British roots and uh, originally was associated with helping do the bunker work at Pebble Beach. In subsequent editions, people like Alistair McKenzie came in and weren't too impressed with the bunker work. But give Douglas Grant some co-design credit for this. But Jack Neville is the name most associated with the design of Pebble. And Jack was a good player. He knew the property. And what was amazing, I think it was uh, it was Tom Doak that gave Neville credit saying, for a complete amateur, a guy that routed this golf course in this figure eight fashion with holes going out to the sea, then coming back inland, then going back to the sea. He said, you laid it out exactly as someone who was just walking the property for the first time would naturally walk the property. So there was nothing forced. In addition, Doak and others <laughs> actually confessed they all would have missed the tiny seventh hole. They would have looked at that spot and said there's not enough room for a golf hole there. But somehow Jack Neville figured out we can use this spot for a tiny par three and it's one of the most beautiful and most photographed in the world. So Jack Neville um, even consulted on changes to Pebble Beach as late as 1972. And he did this work in 1915 to 1919. He did nine holes at a Bay area club called Diablo country club and then did nine Oceanside holes at Pacific Grove Golf Links, the, the municipal layout uh, close to Pebble Beach. And that was 1960. So here it is. He did Pebble Beach, opened in 1919. And then previous to that, had had a little bit of design work up in the Bay Area at Diablo. And then did nothing else. Nine really cool little holes at Pacific Grove in 1960. What were you doing between 1920 and 1960? And after that, you had such a genius 
you know, for what you discovered on the property at Pebble Beach. But Jack Neville, we we thank you for Pebble. Well, you know what he was doing. He was playing Pebble Beach. <laughs> and probably did pretty well as a real real estate salesman there. Right. Exactly. Uh, the other example you had is someone who I think has some very good courses to his name, but it's just that the one is so much better. That would be Hugh Wilson, a Philadelphia man. We talked about Hugh in the opening segment because he contributed to and finished up Pine Valley, but Marion East, one of the most fabled golf courses in the world and one of its greatest designs on a small piece of property to cram so much variety in um, incredible from one hole to the next the pacing the look the greens and this is a golf course that has two par fives the second and the fourth hole and then that's it no more par fives and somehow is among the 10 greatest courses in the world many times a u.s open site and they all seem to be historic so Hugh Wilson um, had a brother, Alan, who was pretty good at this craft uh, himself, yet Hugh nor Alan did much beyond Marion East. Hugh did Marion West about two minutes down the road, much shorter course. He did a municipal course for Philadelphia called Cobbs Creek, which is very close to being restored once it gets through the city politics. He did a course that is an LPGA tour site and a former PGA championship site called Seaview down in Atlantic City. And it's now known as the Bay Course. And for years, it was given credit to Donald Ross. Turns out, Hugh Wilson designed that golf course. Ross came in about six years after that and tweaked it and did a lot of the bunker work there. But that's it. Hugh Wilson, Marion West. Maybe, I mean, Marion East, a little Seaview maybe. Um, Hugh, you had a ton of talent, and I wish you had used it a little more. You just never know with some of these guys. Uh, I mean, Hugh was a society guy. He had money, and so it isn't like he needed to go make a living, you know, designing golf courses. But with the talent that he displayed at Marion East, uh, he – he sure could have been perhaps one of the greatest architects if he had chosen to go down that path. And maybe that's just it with several of these guys. It's, it's almost a hobby and not what they wanted to make their life's work about at, you know, a hundred years later, it kind of is the one thing that they are known for, even though it's not something that they, really built their entire life around. Yeah, fair point. Uh, you know, most of the guys that get good at it do it for a living. Uh, back then, the way society worked was, no, I've got plenty of money. I'll spend my life ho however I choose. And you did have people like George Thomas, who from Philadelphia, who did L.A. and Bel Air and Riviera, who never accepted a design fee. He didn't need one. So maybe the other example you had on your list 
uh, is over in Ireland. Uh, the championship course at Port Marnock, built by a guy who I don't think we really know much about either. He was a, for what I could uh, find, he was a insurance broker in Scotland uh, by the name of William Pickman. He and a friend, George Ross, found a uh, peninsula in the Dublin area that seemed prime for golf and decided to build uh, the course at Port Marnock there. And I don't really think they did much with it, right? It's kind of a, a natural, you build the golf horse on the land and it, it dictates itself, uh, which what is kind of what makes it so great. Oh, what else can you say about it, Joe? Yeah. I mean, I'm a big Port Marnock fan. It is uh, hardly uh, old head in terms of contouring and dr- and drama. Um, but what it has is a nice little rippled piece of property, no steep climbs or plunges or anything like that. And uh, it's the firm, fast links course that we love next to the sea with well-placed bunkers and uh, the kind of golf course that, again, good links players love. You really have to golf your ball with trajectory shot choices and so forth. Um, so, it isn't that they need to do work a certain piece of property with tremendous skill. They almost needed simply to lay out a, a normal kind of golf course on, on a you know normal piece of property, which is just what they did. They just made it a really strong test. Now, subsequent architects and tweaks over the years, you know, help perfect it um, into, you know, certainly a top 75 course in the world today. But I know nothing about Mr. Ross or Mr. Pickman. Tip of the hat uh, for getting us uh, started with Port Marnock. There's a couple of, if I may, to wrap up this conversation, there's a couple of guys that maybe we'll throw into a tier three where it's almost like a, I think it's like a wait and see. You know, we might one day consider them to be one hit wonder architects. We're not really, not really sure at this point and not calling them that now, but I know Joe has some debate to one of my arguments here, but for a little while there, the one modern example of, of a one hit wonder might have been King Collins and Sweeten's Cove. Uh, just because that is such a highly thought of, uh, the little course that could there in the middle of nowhere, Tennessee, uh, built on a limited budget, a passion project that has become a cult classic. And, you know, for a few years, it's all they had. So they were somewhat of a one-hit wonder, uh, beating the lone drum of Sweetens Cove. But in the past few years, we've had King Collins, you know, build another nine-hole project in New York called Ennis, they just finished Landman Golf Club in Homer, Nebraska, which by all accounts looks like it's going to be something pretty special in its own right. And we know that they recently have been tapped to build another reversible nine-hole course down in the um, Bluffton, Hilton Head, South Carolina area at May River. So while at one point... I, and maybe even still now, some may think of them as a one-hit wonder. 
I don't know that that will be the case in 10 years, let alone 50. Yeah, I think when we discuss cult favorites, <laughs> uh, certainly that's where uh, Sweetens Cove started and word spread. And uh, a lot of important people came to look and even get involved financially. Um, so it's been a remarkable success story for them and focused worthy attention on King Collins. And so, yeah, Landman just has had fantastic reviews. So let's, uh, let's let a few months and years evolve. Certainly they have one giant hit at the moment. And um, as to whether the others will put them in an elite category or confine them to the one hit wonder category, time will tell, I suspect given the reception uh, is there, they will not be one hit wonders. They will be multi hit wonders. Exactly. So we're, we're just tossing them in as, as something else to, to talk about here. But uh, the other one I thought about tossing in just as a, a we'll see, which, you know, I, I think he fit in tier two if it comes to be, um, but Joe has a, a problem with my argument here. So, uh, <laughs> I just think because of the reception in the in a couple of years since it opened that Dumbarney Lynx has received. A lot of people think the last true Lynx in Scotland uh, that was built uh, by a name by the name man by the name of Clive Clark, Ryder Cup player, uh, who has become a well accomplished architect. Uh, and it's not like he has a bunch of slouches to his name as Joe, I will talk about here in just a second. Uh, I just think that you look way down the line at a one course that shines so much more above the rest. It could be Dumbarney links that does that for Clive. What do you think, Joe? Yeah, Al, you know, uh, in debating the whole notion of a one hit wonder, OK, um, when the music folks do it, you know, they're obviously the band that put out the giant hit also put out other songs. Now, maybe one of those other songs reached number 22 on the charts. Actually, that's pretty good. That sold a lot of records. Maybe it didn't crack the top 40, but it cracked the top 100. A minor hit at best, but nevertheless a hit. And then sometimes... They just didn't do anything else. Okay. So it depends on how you define one hit wonder. In Clive Clark's case, I see where you're going with this. Again, I have to nod in your direction to say Dumbarney is so good that it has the potential to completely eclipse anything else Clive Clark did. By the same token, I'll shake your, I'll shake my head and wag my finger at you and say, not so fast, my friend, to borrow Lee Corso's <laughs> expression, because Clive Clark may have been a broadcaster, may have been a successful player, but as an architect, he's accomplished much more than Dumbarney Links. In the Southern California area, um, did uh, one of the two courses, a wonderful golf course at the Hideaway. Uh, on the resort side, Indian Wells Golf Resort, um, a golf course called the uh, Celebrity is what they named it. Tons of flowers and water hazards and mountain views. 
Um, and it ranks in the top 25 of California public courses. It's that good. And then he did one that was in the top 100 public courses in the United States from Maine called Belgrade Lakes. So a number of other projects uh, across the pond as well. And uh, again, depending how we define it, Clive Clark is either just an excellent accomplished architect with one massive hit uh, or a guy with plenty of hits. And, um, you know, Dumbarney just happens to be the best of the bunch. So, you know, maybe a tough sell, but I guess we'll we'll see if we're still alive and kicking. Uh, if down the road people think Dumbarney is that much better than any of those, but you're exactly right, Joe. It's it's hard to call someone a one-hit wonder that has multiple hits already to their name. So I thought that was a fun conversation. Um, I think you know this could change again as we continue on in the future. You know, maybe there's someone else that comes along the pipe uh, that we think can be a part of this conversation. Uh, I'm scratching my head and digging deep to find much else on this topic, but you know, maybe there's, there's something else to be said here. Yeah. Al, I mean, we did our research, but folks, if we've missed one or two that you want to recommend, let us know. Or if we're dead wrong, just, you know, shoot us down and we'll tuck our tails and carry on. Anyways, Joe, uh, it's been good to talk to you again today. Thanks for the chat uh, and the idea again as well. That was a very good one. I uh, hope we taught some people a thing or two and they have something that can, they can use and uh, impress their friends with in the world of golf. Something that isn't really talked about a ton, but uh, is out there as another conversation piece. Al, it was good to be with you as always today. It's always fun talking about any branch or aspect of architecture with you on the Lynx podcast. And since you mentioned Lee Corso, I think the next idea we should come up with has some sort of a uh, a headgear choice at the end of it. And we can uh, release the video of you choosing uh, the headgear that is associated with whatever we're talking about. How's that sound? Outstanding. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I'm, I'm up for that. Okay. We'll make our picks. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Joe.